me a penny. And that's how it happens. Everything is supposedly free today, like television. And you realize even advertising on the television pays for it all. It pays all those big guys. You see all those stars that you see and all the rest of it. So don't take everything for granted. The whole world isn't like that. And believe you me, when it is like that, you're not going to get the truth. It doesn't happen. You're hamstrung. You're tied into what you can say or who you can offend or not offend. Back with more after these messages. through the matrix. I've talked so many times about how the big system truly works. The parallel government that Professor Carl Quigley called it, and Maggie Thatcher called it, and others who have been high up in politics or bureaucracy, uh, when they leave their jobs, they end up in this parallel bureaucracy where they all know each other worldwide, because they've all mixed and worked with each other in the past. And this is what Quigley was talking about, uh, they form a parallel government that gets true work done. We find that Brzezinski also touches on it when he talks about the technocrats. These people, these politicians, prime ministers, presidents, or ex-prime ministers, they become technocrats. They're given true power for the dominant minority, as Huxley called, the ones who really run the planet, those who own the resources, the big corporations, everything you need, all the energy supplies and so on. And it's interesting, too, how they use all the non-governmental organizations funded through the series of big foundations that are often owned, the big ones, the big, big funders are owned by the guys who own, like the, the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England and things like that, or the Rothschild Bank in Switzerland. These are the same people. And they also own the pharma companies, too. It's amazing how it all ties in together, isn't it? But when you've talked to many federal bureaucrats in different countries, it's amazing what you find out when it comes to new retirement time for them. Do you know that federal, federal government agents get pre-retirement therapy, like lectures, for about six months to a year before they retire? Because, you see, they've never mixed with ordinary people. They've never, ever really had to worry about the big things in life. Some of them don't even drive cars. They're, they're chauffeur-driven. And they have to relearn things. It's like putting a baby out into the streets. You know? And so they get this sort of, sort of uh, therapy as to how, and tuition as to how they can pass their time in retirement. And here's what happens. They tell them to go into charitable organizations and to also move out from their main place where they all gather around like in Canada is Ottawa and Washington DC of course and then certain areas of London in England and just outside London they're told to move out for retirements and maybe start up an NGO a non-governmental organization which of course the governments will tell them that they approve of in other words it's almost a continuation of their career they never really retire. And there's funding extra on top of their pensions they'll receive for doing this kind of work. 
and they infiltrate through little towns and villages across the world, these people. Very nice people. And they will eventually put little notices around uh, or in the town hall for a little meeting, interested people in environment and so on. And that's up to their part. They're part of the technocratic, uh, I wouldn't call them quite the elite, they're lower on the scale, but they're very necessary to get things going. For instance, in Sudbury, this, this town, a mining town, uh, not far from me, only last year it suddenly came up in the paper that there was an environmental group materialized in Sudbury. And that's who made it up, all these kind of, kind of high paycheck types, ex-exec types from government and so on. And they're, now they're, they're pretty well um, advising town councils on what they can and can't do, this non-governmental organization. And that happens all over the place. See, this is all from a central head. That's what we have to understand. The parallel government that Quigley was talking about obviously has a head to coordinate them all, to make sure they're all on track in the same direction at the same time. And it's the same with other people in the big upper establishment. They have no problem getting their, their, their spiels into the newspaper, their particular beef, you might say, or enthusiasm, whatever they're into or been told to be into. They never retire. This is like an added bonus on top of their big fat paychecks. You see? And to give you an example of this, I mean, we all know about how they're blaming the world now, uh, the people in the world, for carbon dioxide. And how it's all tying into the environment, global warming. And I've gone through ad nauseum the statements made out by the Club of Rome, where the founders, Alexander King was one of them, admitted in one of his own books that he wrote with the co-founder called The First Global Revolution, that back in the 70s they were given the task to bring the whole world together. And they realized that it could only be done through a war-type scenario. That's when people pull together, sacrifice, do what they're told by government, uh, even have rationing and so on. And experts come to the fore to guide the public on what to do. And King said, he said, they were given that task. They looked at all kinds of ways to get a war-type scenario going. And they thought, well, if man was an enemy of the planet, if they could convince people of this, uh, then, then man would be the enemy altogether. We'd have to work against man himself. And they said that would fit the bill. Global warming would fit the bill. So they dreamed the whole thing up. And as I've said before, once they start, they will never deviate from their plans. Never, ever deviate from their plans. So you can always take it to the bank, whatever they say in, the, in their own books and journals. Now, here's one character here. And this is presented in the Guardian News, theguardian.co.uk, and the Observer as well. It's from the 22nd of July, 2007. Come back 2007. It's to give you an idea how you're bombarded with articles and you don't really notice that it's almost subliminal, the way it all comes in, until you agree uh, with everything that happens on TV to do with global warming and too many people and all this stuff. See, it's too many of the wrong sort of people. That's what they mean for a post-industrial era. But this, is, this article here says, Science chief cut birth rate to save the earth, he says. The new museum head says lower population would cut CO2 at a fraction of renewable energy costs. So 
that's their answer to it. Simple economics, get rid of a bunch of the population, right? Even though there's no relationship between global warming and CO2 rising, see CO2 follows any warming pattern, actually follows sunspots or lack of them. It will either reduce or increase them. It's nothing to do with us. And since people were, were born here millions of years ago, causing any global warming, the same scientists will tell you, oh, there's been, there's been many periods of global warming between ice ages. Well, that happened without any of their help. But facts don't matter here because there's another agenda at work. It says here the new head of the Science Museum has an uncompromising view. See, they gave him this kind of semi-retirement at a science museum. It's an uncompromising view about how global warming should be dealt with. Get rid of a few billion people. Chris Rapley, who takes up his post on September the 1st, is not afraid of offending. I'm not advocating genocide, says Rapley. What I am saying is that if we invest in ways to reduce the birth rate by improving contraception, education, and health care, we will stop the world's population reaching its current established or estimated limits of between 8 and 10 billion. When did they come up with this estimated limit? And so next we are putting it to, not, not prediction, but an estimated limit. Limit is a different thing from a prediction. Meaning they've already got a limit on it now, you see. That in turn will mean less carbon dioxide is being pumped in the atmosphere because there will be fewer people to drive cars and use electricity. The crucial point is that to achieve the goal, you would only have to spend a fraction of the money that would be need, needed to bring about technological fixes, nuclear power plants, or renewable energy plants. However, everyone has decided quietly to ignore the issue. Then he goes on and on and on about how since he left, left NASA, you know, that big military-industrial complex, the guys who made missiles, this is what this guy was working in most of his life. Because you see these big missiles that was going to come across the sky from Russia or vice versa, from the States, um, have to go out of the atmosphere. And that's, that was NASA's main field, you see. It's a military organization. They don't just put spiders up in space to see how they can mate. That's just for children to believe in, you see. It's to do with repairing military satellites and stuff like that. That's what they're up there for, the shuttles and so on. And it says here, he was given this, this position um, since 2005 when Lindsay Sharp about to left the 150,000 pounds. That's not a bad little pop on top of your pension, is it? 150,000 pound post as a museum uh, head following rows about financial waste and so on. But what does it say about this guy, too? He belongs to, as well, the Optimum Population Trust. That's the bunch that Prince Charles had out recently, pushing for the same thing. As I say, remember, too, that the elite have always been worried about the numbers of ordinary people, and Charles Galton Darwin put that very clearly. You know, the, the wrong sort of people breeding. In his book, The Next Million Years, in the 1950s, and he was a part of the scientific elite himself. He was a, a physicist, the grandson of Charles. So here you have the Optimum Population Trust that's made up of very white, very rich, upper elite people that Mr. this, this character here, uh, Ratley, belongs to. Now, I'm going to put this link up on my site at the end of the show, plus a, a couple of other links as well. And it isn't until you go into what 
what else Mr. Rapley was in. And again, he was at King's Edward School, Bath, Jesus College, Oxford, you know, up there with the Silver Spoon, Manchester University. He got an MSc in radio astronomy. And then he was at University College London, got a PhD in X-ray astronomy in 76. He was also into dealing with all kinds of um, detection devices, devices which gather info right down to the chips that we're talking about these days. This character, after all, controlling people, observing them, and monitoring them is very important to these control freaks. Back with more after this break. just like civil servants, top civil servants and uh, people like that never retire, they're given other jobs to do within society they're given their causes to champion because it's a policy, a policy above the elected politicians and their policies generally, although they're both combining together as we see these days in fact they, 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 get, they basically lobby governments to get their way they're full-time lobbyists, just like any other big corporation, all of these foundations and NGOs. But get back to Mr. Rapley. I said here that, um, apart from all the other things he was given, you know, different directorships and so on, just during his time in Antarctic, he helped Al Gore. to the power of Al Gore, you see. The, you know, the green man himself. With a live uh, concert by arranging for the Rotheras Research Station's in-house band, Noon attack to perform in Antarctica as part of an event, and so on. So he's, he's in with all the, the same greeny players, the, the big elitists that want the population reduced. Now, there's another link I'll put on my site as well. It's an excellent site. It's about um, foundations. And they have a green tracking library on it. You can find out who gives all the grants out to the NGOs, who runs them, in other words and what their policies are, and what their mandates are. And it's, it's an excellent uh, site. There's two of them actually from the same site. There's an index of foundations. It says here, here's a quote by Barbara Dudley from the Beach Foundation. She says, It is true that the environmental movement is an upper-class white movement. We have to face that fact. It's true. Now listen to the words. They're not wrong that we are rich and they are up against us. We are the enemy as long as we behave in that fashion. So how do they alter that? We and them and all that stuff? Well, they have to come in and try and find things in common with you, then gradually educate you, you see, until you've got the right ideas and the right opinions through massive propaganda. That's how it's done. I'll read that again. It's so, so wonderfully true. It is true that the environmental movement is an upper-class white movement. Remember the dominant minority that, that uh, Huxley talked about. We have to face that fact. It is true. They're, they are not wrong that we are rich and they are up against us. We are the enemy as long as we behave in that fashion. And on this particular link, and I'll put these links up, you can, there's a, a box you can type in the particular um, environmental group or foundation you want to investigate and they'll take you to it. That's very 
good indeed and there's also one from the same group it's got at the top the golden rule who has the gold rules they took that relief from uh, a, a Canadian entrepreneur the, the same one by the way that owned An- uh, Alcan and daddy in fact set up the whole um, booze industry during prohibition and ran the booze from Canada and the states then, then when they stopped it and let booze flow in the states and then banned it in Canada they, they reversed the flow because they had the network set up and they got Alcan with its, with its um, waste aluminum oxide to lobby governments and, and dental associations to put it in your toothpaste. Big guys. But it says, and their dad, by the way, is the guy who had that above his bed, the golden rule, who has the gold rules. Private foundations have taken substantial control of the environmental movement in America. They bring with them what psychiatrist Ron Roy Menninger called the narcissism of the righteous, a.k.a that I'm I'm a better angel than you syndrome. Having money and the power to decide who gets it is intoxicating and toxic both to those who give and those who get. They live in a world that knows nothing of creating wealth but only of spending it. But don't call it a a plutocracy, which is the rule of wealth, because that will end your credibility among the plutocrats. And don't call those by who rule by wealth an oligarchy, which is ruled by by the elite few because that will end your credibility with the elite few so we're used to calling them rich guys who give the money and the marching orders and we call them the ecologarchy the ecologarchy that sounds pretty good it says you know a story with a humorous ending or an unexpected juxtaposition of two disparate planes of thought that produces a sudden insight however the products of the plutocracy and their ecologarchy are not funny to the people whose lives they ruin they destroy jobs, they destroy companies, they destroy industries, they destroy industrial sectors. Their power is enormous and dangerous. Many liberal foundations have become prescriptive. That is, they design their own programs for leftward social change and then pressure a highly orchestrated network of environmental groups to perform their projects. Some foundations no longer accept applications but only fund pre-selected groups. And it gives you cases and points of and how they word it if you want grants from them. It says numerous foundations have some version of this exclusionary policy. Prescriptive also means pressuring applicants from the open application process into programs they would not normally have originated themselves. Now here's an interesting one because David Suzuki, the big green man for Canada, the guy who said, and it's up here in Google, by the way, and I have the link to it, where he says the people are just maggots, you know. He's a geneticist. It's got the Environmental Grant Makers Association. Did you know there was one? The Environmental Grant Makers Association. It's a group of more than 200 foundations with important environmental programs. And I'll be back with more on this after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. This is Alan Watts, where 
cutting through the matrix, discussing how the big foundations fund pretty well all the big topics, the major topics that you hear about today. And they, they comprise a parallel government. You have to get the book Foundations, Their Power and Influence. It's about it, starting with the, the Rees Commission going back into the 1950s, the early 50s, a congressional investigation into why these big foundations, like the Rockefeller Foundation, Carnegie, Ford, etc., want to fund all the universities and so many other institutions that we take for granted, why they were funding what seemed to be all left-wing communistic policies. And it isn't until you tie it in with Professor Carl Quigley, who was a historian for the Council on Foreign Relations, Royal Institute for International Affairs, Canadian Institute for International Affairs, Australian Institute for International Affairs, New Zealand Institute for International Affairs. You see that happen on all the British Empire countries. It isn't until you go into his book, Tragedy and Hope, and the Anglo-American Establishment, his other great book, that it starts to make sense to you how they really create policy. They're outside of politics, and they're not responsible to the public. And he talks about uh, the creation of the big foundations, and that's how they fund these big groups, like the Royal Institute for International Affairs, which is a private, non-governmental organization, even though they often staff governments and civil service bureaucracies with their members. Getting back to this particular site, it's undue influence that has the stuff on uh, where you can check up the different foundations. But the, as I say, um, foundations are their, their power and influence. During the Rees Commission, they were astonished in the 50s to find out uh, that um, their job, according to, to Norman Dodd, who was one of the investigators for Congress and for the Senate, uh, was told bluntly by the head of one of them, one of the big foundations says, well, our job is to change the culture in the West, so much so that they'll blend seamlessly with the Soviet-type system. They're going back to the Club of Rome, Mr. Mr. King, the ones that dreamt up the idea of global warming. That would fit the bill to get us all under this, this agenda. In the 70s, uh, you, you see how these tie in together. Everything ties in together. Big foundations... Uh, come up with ideas, big think tanks, and their foundations too. Set a policy. Uh, they all use it. All the other ones use it together because they're all on the same road. Using socialism, which is actually Fabian socialism, which is not for the working classes at all. In fact, they encourage welfareism so they can have more governmental agencies right into your life. There's children getting brought up now, and they call the different social workers by their first names, and they think they're their friends. I'm not kidding. It's amazing. It says here, big foundations which have a distinctly liberal cast use their tax-exempt dollars to fund everything from the environmental movement to studies supporting the welfare state to population control. It's all mixed together. When used to finance public interest group advocacy, foundation wealth can have an enormous influence on which public policy is adopted. Most significant policy initiatives undertaken today by the federal government have some foundation support, often a lot of it, and many are implemented as a task, a result of foundation-funded advocacy. Those who run big foundations represent a small, elite, insulated group, most of whom live in the eastern United States. That's what Professor Carl Quigley said, too, the eastern establishment. Hundreds or even thousands of miles from the areas affected by the environmental policies they support. 
Foundations have no voters, no customers, no investors. They have no complaints department either. They have no wish to receive feedback from those affected by their decisions, nor are they accountable to anyone for funding policies which adversely affect the well-being of people or local economies. Tax-exempt foundation funding of environmental advocacy groups unfairly tilts the playing field against the views and input of those most affected by the policies advocated. The average citizen's voice and inputs in the government decision-making process is often drowned out by those advocacy groups largely funded by foundations, making our government seem even more remote and less responsive to the needs of the average person. It's, it's astonishing, but again, Maggie Thatcher referred to it. She said she now belonged to it and she'd left government. We have uh, Zygmunt Brzezinski in his own book, Between Two Ages, talk about it. He says they're technocrats now. They call these characters technocrats, not responsible to the public. They're given more power than presidents and prime ministers because they can get the job done. The Club of Rome also said they, they advocated collectivism. That's why they were merging the Soviet system with the West. It's much easier to, to run uh, the masses, the masses down below them with vast bureaucracies and agencies over the top of them. And it, and it said under a democracy, they couldn't get anything done because the public input often stops what they want done. Therefore, they bypass public inputs altogether. You see, that's how it works. And these foundations, even though there's hundreds of them, and it will tell you how many are in here, in fact, you know, and how much money they have. Um, it says here, for instance, foundation assets now exceed $200 billion, half of the control by fewer than 200 foundations. And if you cut down those foundations to 200 that runs it all, it'll come back to only about 10. And even then you can cut them back further to about five main ones. Completely intertwined, by the way, at the top, with the Rockefeller Group, with the CIA, MI6, Mossad, and all the rest of it, I've read before from even uh, America's cultural Cold War, how America, how the CIA ran the culture industry through the whole Cold War. By the way, they haven't given up. And in the book it said, and this is all from declassified stuff, they can tell you 50-odd years later, or 40 years later, they tell you so much of how uh, they were altering the culture, again, to go along with agendas that the public hadn't even heard of yet. Slowly, 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 almost subliminally. But the Rockefellers, it tells you in the book, were approached often when the CIA didn't want to go through a black budget or some other thing. They'd go to Rockefeller. Why? Because Rockefeller had a big, big part in the CIA. And he would fund them privately too. And he had a whole bunch of targets he wanted taken out of Latin America because he, he was already taking over a good part of the food industry and the resources down there. And he literally had a list of people he wanted removed. This great benefactor to mankind. The guy who funds all the major universities across the planet, along with a list of things he like get pushed and things he'd rather have not mentioned at all. You wouldn't believe what hides behind charitable organizations. You have no idea. No idea at all. And we also know that Britain, for instance, and they've had so many politicians coming up from Tony Blair onwards up to the present pushing for GM food to be unlimited with what it wants to do, what it wants to sell to the public. So that stuff that's soaked in 
Monsanto pesticide, incredible amounts of, and they wonder why we've all got cancers and stomach problems. Well, they know. They know, of course. But again, depopulation, they say, is a good thing, isn't it? And now they're getting uh, stuff coming out from a, a government agency that supposedly tested organic food compared to what they called ordinary food. You know, what is ordinary food now, I wonder? Because there is no ordinary food. It's either organic or it's GMO, you see? But it's all in the wording. And what they're trying to say in the government report is, a pro-government report by the government, is that there's no difference in health benefits. So here's the Mail Online by Jonah Blythman, 31st of July. It says, despite its obvious benefits for our health and for the environment, organic food continues to be denigrated by the political and corporate establishment in Britain. It's been out for the last few days, this government report. The food industry, in alliance with pharmaceutical and big biotechnology companies, has waged a long, often cynical campaign to convince the public that mass-produced, chemically-assisted and intensely farmed products are just as good as organic foods, despite mounting evidence to the contrary. The latest assault in this propaganda exercise comes from the Food Standards Agency, the government's so-called independent watchdog. It's as good as the FDA. You know how good that is. Which has just published a report claiming that there is no, no nutritional benefit to be gained from eating organic produce. Those forces bent on promoting GM crops and industrialized production would have been delighted by the widespread media coverage of the agency's report, portraying enthusiasm for organic foods as little more than a fad among neurotic consumers that would pass once the public is given the correct information. But what is truly misguided is not the increasing popularity of organic food or, or goods, but the Food Standard Agency's determination to halt this trend and instead promote genetic modification. The new report from the FSA highlights this. For all the publicity it has attracted, the document does not contain any new material. In fact, it is just an analysis of existing research carried out by other bodies. Moreover, the organization that conducted this second-hand study, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, is not renowned as a leading center in this field. Indeed, there is far more significant work currently being done on organic food by several other bodies, some of it funded by the U European Union, although the FSA has chosen to ignore it. It's difficult to avoid the conclusion that the FSA has decided to give such loud backing to this report because it can bend the findings to suit its political pro-GM anti-organic agenda, and that's what it is. You see, when the Milner Group started up, and they sent out uh, guys like Cecil Rhodes, and they combined the groups together, they became the Royal Institute for International Affairs that was set up always to be a counter to democracy to bypass democracy on behalf of the already existing elites, the dominant minority. They, they sent them out to take, to take over the world's resources. And under a warfare strategy, and these guys were trained in warfare strategy, you go for the basic essentials, first of all. Food and water. After that comes all energy sources. You get people totally dependent on you because you will be the big boss and you will decide if they can eat or heat themselves, for instance, or drink some water. That's incredible power. And they're going to do it eventually through the big front group that they created, read Carol Quigley, to say, called the United Nations. 
And this, I'll put this article up here, the whole article for you to see at the, for the end of the show on my website. All these links will be up on that particular website. It's so interesting, too, that we're, see, we're already international, and we've been trained since 2001. We have no rights. We have no privacy. And, of course, it always comes back to, well, what have you got to hide? Well, that's not the point of it. You see, we are individual human beings with the right to privacy. You have the right to what's in your own head. That's nobody's business but yours. It's your property. But they want to know everything about you. And to show you how there are no nations, and that all of the agencies, all of the intelligence agencies, are completely interlinked worldwide. If you truly were a separate nation, would you allow foreign countries to look into your own citizens' bank accounts. This article is from 28th of July, 2009, from the BBC News. The Economic Union to Renew U.S. Bank Scrutiny Deal. The EU plans to renew an agreement allowing U.S. officials to scrutinize European citizens' banking activities under U.S. anti-terrorism laws. EU member states have agreed to let the European Commission negotiate new conditions under which the U.S. will get access to private banking data. U.S. officials currently monitor transactions handled by SWIFT, a huge interbank network based in Belgium. German politicians have voiced concern about the scope of U.S. bank security. The U.S. wants to have access to a new European database that SWIFT is setting up in Switzerland. The U.S. Treasury already has access to SWIFT's American database. Tracking the funding of terror groups. Terror groups. I wonder if they mean CIA and MI6. Globally has been a priority for Washington since the 11th September 2001 attacks in the U.S. But mind you, it works both ways. That means that Europe's also got access to everybody's bank account in America. That's what it also means. See, it's not just what they don't say, it's what they leave out. You're supposed to figure in the rest yourself. See, everything is a deal at the top, and they all must play the same game. That's part of it. They don't really trust each other unless they're all on the same track with the same rules. That's how it works. That's how it works. And here is from the Evening Standard, London Evening Standard. Tamil flu, right? Half of children suffer swine flu drug side effects. Now, this is from the 31st of July. More than half of children taking Tamil flu suffer side effects such as nausea, insomnia, and nightmares, etc. said. Two studies from experts at the Health Protection Agency showed a high proportion of British school children reporting problems after taking the antiviral drugs. I wonder if this is a toned-down version, you see. What's a few nightmares sort of thing? When you look at what happened in Japan and the effects it had on the children there, severe physical effects, maybe permanent, some of them. Data was gathered from children at three schools in London and one in South West who were given Tamiflu earlier this year after classmates became infected. I wonder how they knew Researchers behind one study said that although children may have attributed symptoms that were due to other illnesses, see, you get one person, if you put up, I've watched this all my life, or something sweeping through an area and somebody faints in a school because they're petrified of it, the other ones suddenly get these strange symptoms. This is ongoing. And generally it ends up in the paper, uh, I don't know what it was. It's, it's called hysteria, that's what it is. This is unlikely to account for all the symptoms experienced. The research published in Eurosurveillance, I love the name of it, Eurosurveillance, looked at side effects reported by 11 and 12-year-olds, pupils in one school, 
in a secondary school in southwest England. The school was closed for 10 days in response to a pupil being confirmed with swine flu on return from a holiday in Cancun, Mexico. A total of 248 pupils took part in the study and were given Tamiflu prophylactically, preventively. Compliance with prophylactic uh, was, was, was high, with 77% of children taking the full course, the researchers said, but they added 51% experienced symptoms such as feeling sick, headaches, and stomach aches. The researchers said likely side effects were common and the burden of side effects needs to be considered when deciding on giving Tamiflu to children prophylactically. And so on and so on. But there's a lot more severe side effects to these symptoms if you look into the Japanese studies and what was happening to the children in Japan. And I used to think, you know, just watching occasional TV growing up, I used to study television. I'd, I'd always scrutinize it and study it. I never got lost in a story because I knew there was always a reason for the story or for a reason uh, with how certain things were put across to the public in a certain way. And when you're being entertained, you don't realize that you're being downloaded with propaganda generally. And the greatest tool they've ever had for propaganda as television. That's why they made a mandate that everybody in, t- in Britain had to get a TV, I think back in the 1950s, and they brought millions of used ones over from the United States with a company called DER and allowed people to pay it up every week. So that was the first time they allowed pay up with nothing, no collateral behind it. Had of a TV. Back with more after this message. Um, I think they've pretty well got it. Um, they've probably got more than one CV now, 
But uh, at, the, at one time you could not. So if you lived in council housing, that was 90-odd percent of the public. Oh, I see. You, you couldn't get a television because you couldn't get a loan or a bank without collateral. And uh, they made that, that was the first exception they made across the country that uh, they called them tick men could go around and collect money every week from the average household. And they delivered the house to the television. They set it up. DER was a company, which is red backwards, of course. And they brought them all in from the United States. And then the propaganda really started hitting the public until you end up with the mess we have today. Oh, I see. Um, is there time for uh, one more question? Yes. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, something you touched on earlier, uh, briefly, I didn't quite catch. Uh, did I understand you uh, correctly to say that the main lobbyist for uh, fluoride in water after the war was a Canadian who had established the uh, liquor empire? It was the Bronfmans. It was yep. the Bronfmans. It was? Yeah, the Bronfmans owned Alcan. It was the largest aluminum uh, uh, factories across the country, including the States, too. Yeah. Oh, I, well, I thought, I thought it was the Carnegie's and uh, Alcoa. Oh, I'm sure they all helped each other they because all they all knew each other very, very well. I see. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, I'd, I'd like to mention quickly also that I found a fascinating uh, document. I just found it online, and it's called uh, um, Hearing. It's 1954 document put out by the uh, U.S. Government Printing uh, Office, and it's uh, Hearings of the Committee on Interstate and Foreign Commerce House of Representatives, a bill to protect the public health from the dangers of fluorination of water. That's what they called it at the time, fluorination. That's right. And it's up, it's up there, and it can be read on the Internet, and it can be downloaded, too. Okay, I'll have a look into it myself. Yeah. Let me send you the link. Thanks for calling. Uh, no, uh, actually, link, send it to me, and I'll mention it next week. Yeah. Okay, I sure will. Thanks, Megan. Sure. You take care. Well, from Hamish myself, Hamish is my dog in Chiro, Canada. It's good night, and may your gods or your gods go with you.